Hi there. You're listening to the Cary Church Podcast. We at Cary seek to be flourishing communities of hope, transformed by God's love, following Jesus and serving in God's world. To find out more on how to connect with us, go to cary.asn.au. Good morning, everyone. The scripture reading this morning is taken from Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all of that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Python and Remesis at store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew wives, whose names were Shephira, Shephra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, what have you done? Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. May God speak to us this morning. Thank you. Thank you, Esther. Esther, can I get you to take that one? I actually don't need that one. Thank you. Got the essentials, got the scriptures, got my toilet paper. I'm ready for anything. Good morning, church. My name's Dave Kilpatrick. I have the privilege of serving as the director of ministries this morning, and uh, it, is, it is great to be with you. It's amazing how God just plans things. I had, we had no comprehension whatsoever when we were planning the preaching series last year, that we would be in this situation at the beginning of the Exodus story. 
And I actually wasn't meant to be speaking today. It was going to be Pete, but Pete's daughter's birthday is this weekend. I said, Dave, would you be able to swap and maybe you do that one and I do this one? I'm so glad he did because I was excited about this scripture. It's, um, we, are, we are starting opening a new series on the book of Exodus. We're going to be spending eight weeks or something on Exodus. And I get to speak on Exodus chapters one and two. And it opens like this. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob. Now, the first problem we have with that is Israel and Jacob are the same people. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob. You see, Jacob was born Jacob. That was his birth name. But he had an encounter with God during his life when God said, you will be called Israel. And Israel became, was the father of 12 children, they became the 12 tribes of Israel and they became the Israelites. So when we're hearing this story, this is the the birth of the Israelite nation. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob and with his family. And it goes through the names. And then they they talk about the fact that they were exceedingly prosperous and they they multiplied and they had lots and lots and lots and lots of kids. And um, they became a concern to the Egyptians, and so the Egyptians started to oppress them. Now that, that's like hundreds of years in about 10 verses. But in order to understand and orientate ourselves in the story, we actually need to go back to understand what's going on. We need to go back to Genesis chapter three. Now in Gen- uh, Genesis chapter 11, sorry. Genesis chapter 11, we've had Adam and Eve and, and the creation story in Genesis one to three. We've had Noah and the boat and the flood. We've had the Tower of Babel. And in Genesis chapter 11, God calls a man called Abram. And he says to Abram, I want you to leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to a land I will show you. Leave everything that is your security, is what is known, is what is secure for you and go to a land I will show you. And the extraordinary thing is that Abram went. He left everything he knew, he left everything that was secure, and he stepped out on a journey with God. And then many years down the track, we have another encounter between Abram and God in Genesis chapter 15. And by this stage, Abram is an old man. And he is um, unable to have children. His wife, Sarah, is barren, and they're unable to have children and he's lamenting the fact that God has, has made him prosperous. He's got lots of sheep and, uh, and other things in his household, but he doesn't have any children. And he doesn't have an heir for himself. And in Genesis chapter 15, we read, then the word of the Lord came to Abram. And, and he was saying, look, this, this second cousin of mine is going to be my heir. And God said to him, this man will not be your heir but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can. Then he said to them, so will your offspring be. Your offspring, although you have no children, your offspring will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And it said, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. So firstly, Abram leaves everything he knows and goes on this journey with God. And then he is an old man. He can't have kids at this point in his life on the natural. And God says, no, you will have a son and you will have many offspring. And God believed him. And then the Lord said to him, know for certain, listen to this, know for certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. 
and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation where they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. And Abraham did have a son. We actually had two sons, but the son of the promise was Isaac. To have Abraham, he had a son called Isaac, and Isaac had two sons called Jacob and Esau. And this line of the Israelites came through Jacob. And this is the Jacob we read about in the first passage of Exodus chapter 1. So we've got this promise to Abram saying, leave everything you know and go to a land I will show you. And then he's there and he says, no, you will have children, you will have offspring, and your descendants will hold this land. I will bring them into this land, but they are going to be in captivity and in a land not their own for 400 years, and they are going to be badly mistreated. And that is the story we see unfolding in Exodus chapter 1. And so as we, we look at the first 15 verses or 14 verses of, of Exodus, um, they, the Israelites arrived in Exodus because Jacob had 11 kids and the youngest was an upstart. The youngest called Joseph was an upstart and the brothers hated him. And so they sold him into slavery. Most of you will know the story. They sold him into slavery and the father thought he was dead. And God worked his story despite these circumstances such that Joseph became the most senior official in all of Egypt under Pharaoh. Because Joseph had interpreted a dream that said you were going to have seven years of plenty and seven years of drought. And Pharaoh put Joseph in charge of accumulating reserves in the seven years of plenty for the seven years of drought. And so as it turned out, during the seven years of drought, Jacob and his family ran out of grain. So they said, go to Egypt and see if you can buy grain. The father thinking that Joseph was dead. And again, the story unfolds. You can read it in the last chapters of Genesis that Joseph and his brothers are reunited. And because of the favour that Joseph has with Pharaoh, his entire family are invited to come into Egypt where there is plenty and settle with the land of Goshen. This is how this story started. And so Jacob and his sons live in Goshen and they flourish and they multiply and what we see is a nation is starting to emerge in this place where God has placed them in the middle of a famine. But then oppression starts. So can you see as we look back at the story over hundreds of years we can see the story of God unfolding. But then all of a sudden in verse 15 we descend out of the big arc of the story of God into the agony and the trauma and the trial of what people were actually experiencing in that moment. As Esther said in verse 15, the king of Egypt said, the Hebrew mid, he called the midwives. So they are being harsh, they are oppressing them, they're trying to work them into the ground and it doesn't matter how harsh they are, they continue to flourish and have kids and thrive. So the Pharaoh called the midwives in. There's two of them, Shipper and Pora. And he calls the midwives in and says, as you are giving, helping the women give birth, if you see that it's a boy, kill them. Now, can you imagine the terrifying situation that the midwives find themselves in? These are women who have dedicated themselves. Their role is to assist women in giving birth, to bring life. And they are an oppressed people. They are enslaved. There are no human rights at this stage. There are no courts and tribunals. Pharaoh can do whatever the heck Pharaoh wants to do. And these two ladies are told to kill the boys on the birthing stool. And what follows is, I think, one of the most extraordinary 
passages in the scripture. Because it says, the midwives, however, feared God. And they did not do what the king said. The midwives, however, feared God. And they did not do what the king said. What an extraordinary act of courage for these women. Now, we think about that in our context and and fearing God and being obedient to what God says in our context, but think about where these women were. Firstly, they were enslaved. Secondly, they didn't have the Bible. The Bible hadn't been written then. They didn't have this powerful story of the revelation of God rescuing his people out of slavery in Egypt because that hadn't happened. They were still in slavery. They didn't have the story of David defeating Goliath. They didn't have the story of the Son of God coming and giving his life for the world. They didn't know the revelation of John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. They didn't have the Holy Spirit. They didn't have 2,000 years of church history. They had none of that. All they had was this story that this God was the God of our father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The stories had been that he created the whole world. And he'd spoken to Abraham and he'd promised to Isaac and to Jacob and that we were his fellowship and somehow God was going to do something. And these two women, in the face of extraordinary terror, feared God and did what was right. They are my heroes. When I grow up, I want to be like those women. That is extraordinary. And so Pharaoh summoned them, as you might expect, and said, why did you this? Why did you let these boys live? These are spunky women. Well, they replied, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are very vigorous. We get there and the job's already done. If I was Pharaoh, I said, well, why do you have the role you've got? But anyway, and remember, we've got this arc of the unfolding story of God in the scripture that, and, and, and then we're in this moment where these women are called and live out of their conviction of what is right and who God is as they know him to be. And so God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives fear God, he gave them families of their own. And thousands and thousands of years later, we are reading the stories and the names of these two women that in the microcosm of the agony of life have been captured and caught up into the unfolding story of God. But it gets worse. Pharaoh then gives this order that all children who are born as a male are being thrown into the Nile and killed. Can you imagine the trauma of being pregnant in that day? Can you imagine the terrifying reality of giving birth to this life that you love inside your womb and wondering when it is born, is someone going to snatch it from my arms and throw it in a river to die? What an agonising place to be. And so then in Moses' birth in uh, Exodus chapter 2, we have the story of the birth of Moses. And remember, there's, there's this, we are in this unfolding story of God, but there is tragic, terrible circumstances that are being played out because of the despotic evil of the leader of the day. Now, a man in the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. 
But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket of reeds for him and coated it with tar and pitch. And then she placed the child in it and put him among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. And his sister stood at a distance to see what would happen. So this poor woman, she has been pregnant for nine months and then horrified but delighted at the same time she realises it's a son and she hides him, probably dresses him as a, as a girl for three months and then she realises, I can't do this anymore. He or we are going to be killed. So he, she surrenders him into a basket in the water. And she might have said to her daughter, I, I can't watch. Can you go and see what happens? And then somehow in the story of God... Pharaoh's daughter walked, went down to the Nile to bathe and her attendants were walking along the riverbank and she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it and she opened it and saw the baby and he was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then the sister asked Pharaoh. So imagine that. The sister's watching. This is Pharaoh's daughter, the one who was oppressing. She sees the baby drawn out and, and Pharaoh's daughter is holding this baby and the sister runs up plucky sister and says shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse this baby for you yes go she answered so the girl went and got the baby's mum and Pharaoh's daughter said to her take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you and so this mum after 12 months of terror surrendering her father finds somehow miraculously that she is being paid by the daughter of the oppressor to feed her own son. She had no comprehension whatsoever of how this story would play into the arc of the story of God and the deliverance of people. And we don't know what was going on in her mind and her heart because it doesn't say, but it does say in Hebrews chapter 11, which talks about all of these people who had faith. It does say that by faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months because they saw he was an ordinary child, not an ordinary child. Somehow they were operating in the context of faith that there was something bigger going on, but they could not possibly have comprehended it. And so... Again, the mother has to surrender her child to Pharaoh's daughter and he grows up in the palace of the Pharaoh. He effectively is raised as Pharaoh's grandson, but he knows who he is. And the story goes on in chapter two that one day he's out walking around watching the oppression of his fellow Israelites and he sees an Egyptian beating up one of the Hebrew slaves. And he has a look around. It says he looked here and there and couldn't see anyone. So he killed the slave master, and hit him in the sand. The next day, he's walking around again, and he sees two Hebrews fighting, and he says, brothers, why are you fighting with one another? And one of them turns to him and said, who put you, Lord and Master, over us? Well, no one yet, but he will be. Who put you, Lord and Master, over us? Are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? And all of a sudden, Moses is terrified. Pharaoh finds out about this and tries to kill him because it's a threat to his authority and so Moses flees. And Exodus chapter 2 leaves with Moses out in far foreign country, tending sheep, finds a wife, has a child and it seems like he's out of the story. And Exodus chapter 2 finishes with these, this passage. During the long period, during that long period, the king of Egypt died the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. 
God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. So we have this arc of the story of God. And then we have these dissensions into the, the trauma and terror of the circumstances on the ground and people who are living out and acting in faith. And in the midst of that, we have this expression of God's heart for a people who are groaning. We don't have, we're not in slavery today. We are not oppressed. Some people are, but we're not. But we do live in extraordinary times. There has never in the history of the world been an event like this, not just because it's a virus, but because it is unfolding live on people's iPhones. We can watch the toilet paper disappear from the shelves as people take photos and it, it is spreading a concern and a fear and a worry. And there's numbers of ways that we can act in that. We can get scared and panic and accumulate and isolate and pretend that this is, I've just got to make sure I'm okay. And that is understandable. We can walk around the shopping centre seeing other people, mums and dads as competitors, as people of suspicion. I was walking down the aisle of the shopping centre the other day and I, was going, I didn't need toilet paper, I was going down the toilet paper aisle and I see people looking at you. It's all right, I put my own, relax. Or we can stand in a place where somehow we understand that the architect of history is actually God and that he has said what the end will look like, that he holds it. He has been orchestrating his grace and purposes in the world over thousands of years and we can't possibly comprehend it or hold it, but we can rest in the fact that it is true. There is no possible way that those two midwives would comprehend the role they would play in the unfolding story. They were just women who found themselves in terrifying situations and feared God and acted on what they believed was right. So what does it mean for us today to fear God and be obedient to what his call for us is? Well, his call for us is to love one another. He said, look, I've, the, all of the commandments hang on these two things. Love me, love each other. That's about it. So what does it mean to love each other today in this moment in time? Well, part of it, as Peter explained, is just to honour the requests for simple things like hygiene. In reality, the virus is probably going to have no impact on me personally whatsoever. I'm healthy, I'm young, really young, as you can tell. And, and I'm, I might get the, it'll be like having a, a flu, it might be a mild cold. But actually, I'm part of a community of people. And there are people in this community, in our community, and in the world who are much more vulnerable to this. I'm also on the board of an aged care home, and this, this really matters for them. 
People will die and have been dying because of this virus. And so part of my role is simply washing my hands and not giving you a handshake and doing the things we've been requested to do so that together we can participate in trying to slow down the spread of this virus so that medical authorities can maintain capacity and look after those people that really need it. I'm actually loving the people who perhaps are living rough on the street so that they have a better capacity for the old people amongst us, for those people who are immunocompromised, to be able to say, actually, I'm going to do my bit and simply wash my hands. And if I'm feeling unwell, I'm not going to join. And so together as a community of people, we can love and serve and take really seriously these steps that have been requested of us and serve one another and serve people we don't know. The other thing we can do is we can share. I've got to tell you, I do not understand this. I remember the last time we all ran out of toilet paper and the nun in the shops. No, I don't. I've been alive for 50 years. It's never happened. There is enough toilet paper in the world we have never wanted for toilet paper. Ever. Like, there's just squillions of it in the shops. You think there's varieties and softnesses and textures and colours and it's everywhere until it's not. There's no shortage of toilet paper. We haven't had a shortage of toilet paper for 50 years, but all of a sudden people are scared and they're clutching and they say, I've got to hold it. Is there anyone who's low on toilet paper? (laughs) Sorry, Kirsty. We're about to launch something this week to say, actually, if you've got a spare roll or two, come and bring it into the table at Timber. And if you've run out, take two. Because actually, alone, people are scared. Together, we've got enough. We have always had enough. And we've got to start to change the conversation to remind people that we actually belong to each other. And so we're, I, I think the, the, the language is something like, can you spare a square? And the reality is, there might be some people that abuse that. I don't think there'll be lots. There might be some people that abuse that, but there will be people amongst us who haven't had the financial or organisational capacity to get the toilet paper they need. And in reality, together, we've got enough. And as we, as the community of God, step into a place where to say, I don't have to clutch. I can share, I can contribute, and we will be okay. We get to change the language of fear around the place. And it's a bit of fun, but it's actually really important because we step out of a place of fear and into a place of community. I don't know where this thing is going to go. The reality is it will get worse before it gets better. And the constraints will increase. But friends, I walked into IGA yesterday and there's food everywhere. We're going to be okay. But we're not going to be okay because there's food everywhere. We're going to be okay because we serve a God who gave his life for the world. In Matthew 6, 25 to 34, Jesus speaking to the crowd says, Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear or what you will wipe your backside with. He didn't actually say that just just so I don't get stoned later. Is not life 
more than food and the body more than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And do not worry about clothes. See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labour or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendour was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not more so clothe you of you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear or what shall we wipe with? For the pagans run after all of these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need him, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Seek first his kingdom. I think that's loving one another serving one another, sharing what we have. The reality is frequently in Western society, we do not have the opportunity to put that into practice because there's very little to worry about. We now have the opportunity to step into a place that is different. At the commissioning service, at the beginning of this year, without any comprehension of where we would be five weeks later, I said that the world does not need more people who are trying to control it. The world does not need more people who are trying to advocate for their own interests or their right or possessions. The world does not need more people who are telling other people who's right or who's wrong or who's pointing fingers or accusing. The world does not need more people yelling. The world does not need more people anxious and desperately trying to defend themselves and their positions. The world desperately needs a community of people who are not afraid. A community of people who, with humility and gentleness, are looking out not for their own interests, but for the interests of others. It needs a community of people who are willing to be with the people on the margins, to include those who are excluded, to welcome those who are shunned, to embrace those who expect to be judged and to forgive and love those that strike out you because that is what God has done for us. The world needs a community of people of whom it is said God is with them and they will love you. Dallas Willard says we do not believe something because we say we believe it. We do not believe something because we believe we believe it. We believe something when we live as though it were true. Now friends, there is a lot of fear in the world. But we are the community as the people of God that understand the promise that says, do not be afraid, I am with you. Don't worry about what you will eat or what you will drink. Seek first my kingdom and I will provide. That is us. They can understandably panic perhaps because they don't know. We are the ones that know. Will we live out of that? In this moment, in this time, Because friends, I believe it is the time for the church to shine and have the opportunity to step into what we say we believe and actually live out of a generosity for one another and a service to one another that says, why are you like that? Because we know that we've got a God who did not even spare his own son. How much more will he not also give us all things? We... Our vision as a church is that we would be a flourishing community of hope. Being and making disciples. Jesus has said, love one another. 
And we have been praying, as a leadership, we've been praying, Lord, shape us into a flourishing community of hope. Friends, maybe this is our moment where we can step out of the theoretical and step into the fear and say, I'm going to act on what I believe. It's not that we're not scared. I imagine those midwives were terrified. But they stood in what they believed. And they lived lives of great risk but sacrifice and generosity to the women who they were serving. We are the church. We are the ones that know that there is a God who died for the world. We are the ones that know that the God says over and over again, do not be afraid for I am with you. The church over the past times has been known for lots and lots of things and many of it's not good. Are we going to be known at this time as a people of peace? As a people of generosity? As a people who share what they have because they just trust that somehow in the scheme of what God is doing, he is going to work it all together for good. Friends, let's not miss this moment. Let's live out of who we know God to be. Serve one another and love one another and be the church. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we have no comprehension about what tomorrow will look like, let alone a month from here. And and Lord, we can't control it. We can't hold that your ways are above our ways. We just trust that you are good and that you are orchestrating your purposes in amongst the chaos of the world. Lord, what I can do is be responsible for how I live in this moment out of the revelation that you have given to me, not to be afraid, but to go because all authority on heaven and earth is yours and to serve and to love and to lay my life down for others. Lord, thank you for this moment in time where we can be salt and light. We can be a people of hope. We can be a flourishing community in the midst of all of the responsible engagements in how we look after the most vulnerable. Oh, Lord Jesus, would you allow and enable our love to grow more and more in depth and wisdom and power that your name might be lifted up as a reflection of your people. Lord, we pray for those on the front line. We pray for those who are most vulnerable. We pray for healing of our nation and our world. But Lord, we pray that your name would be glorified and that faces would be turned to you in the midst of this. Thank you, Lord Jesus.